0: good morning good afternoon good evening wherever you are whenever you are hello and welcome to monsignor's parish radio the topic for tonight will be our lord jesus christ we'll be talking on some things about christology i'd like to first start with the promise of a redeemer and the preparation for his coming let's start with a quote from saint augustine he says that man could sell himself into slavery but he could not redeem himself. And so we establish a need of a redeemer. By their sin, our first parents lost sanctifying grace for themselves and their descendants and fell into the slavery of sin. It was impossible for them or their descendants by their own efforts to arise from their fall, just as it is as a dead man by his own efforts to return to life again. Man of himself can neither atone for the offense he had committed against God, nor could he regain sanctifying grace and the right to heaven. No one but God himself can atone fully for an offense committed against the infinite majesty of God. But God could not make satisfaction in his own nature, for satisfaction means a reparation in word or deed by submission on by the one who did the offense, and self-abasement by that same side of the offending, and God is incapable of submission or self-abasement in his own nature. So, if God required complete satisfaction from men for the offense committed against his divine majesty, then a divine person had to become man, and in his human nature, that is the offending nature, thereby make an infinite satisfaction. And this, and God did. In his infinite goodness and mercy, he determined to do this. He promised fallen man a divine redeemer, who was to render full satisfaction in his stead and restore sanctifying grace to him, and also the right of inheriting inheriting the kingdom of heaven. So that's the need. Now, where does God promise this redeemer? The promise of a redeemer was made immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve. God said to the serpent in Genesis three fifteen, "I will put enmities between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel." The seed of the woman is the promised Redeemer, through whom the power of the devil is to be destroyed and the whole human race freed from subjection to him. The words of the promise are called the first gospel, proto evangelium because they are the first glad tidings of a Redeemer to come. But the coming of the Redeemer was delayed. In order that man might learn by experience the evil and the misery of sin, the coming of a promised Redeemer was delayed for many thousands of years. And still, His redeeming work was begun from the moment of the promise. Those who lived before His actual coming could not, it is true, enter heaven, but with the grace of god which gave with the, with the grace god gave them on account of the redeemer to come they could merit the eternal kingdom and then enter into it with him once he opened it and so there, there's a preparation of the world for the coming of the messiah in order that the true faith and hope in the future redeemer might not vanish entirely from the earth god chose abraham and made a special covenant with him that the messiahs should be born of his posterity he also distinguished abraham and his descendants the israelites from all other nations and from time to time revealed himself to them in wonderful manners the law which god gave to the israelites through moses on mount sinai especially the first of the ten commandments obliged them to remain faithful to the one true god and to abhor all idol worship. The sacrifices prescribed in the law continually reminded them of their sinfulness and of their duty to worship God. The bloody sacrifices made them familiar with the thought that the world was to be reconciled with God by blood. Many rites and ceremonies, such as circumcision, purification, the eating of the Paschal Lamb, all these were types of greater things to come. Now, later on, God raised up prophets in Israel, men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, who by their preaching and teachings, their threats and admonitions too, again and again converted the people from idolatry, and by their prophecies kept alive among them the hope of the Redeemer to come. God also prepared the Gentiles, the pagans, for the coming of the Savior. He manifested Himself to them in many ways, exhorting them to penance and amendment, especially by the Israelites, whom, with their sacred books, he dispersed among them. He hath therefore scattered you, Israelites, among the Gentiles, who know not him, that you may declare his wonderful works, and make them know that there is no other Almighty God besides him. See Tobit, chapter 13, verse 4. So, the promised redeemer When the fullness of time was come, God sent his Son. So writes St. Paul to the Galatians. At last the great advent was over. The fullness of time had come. When the final promise of the Redeemer was made, an angel of the Lord brought the glad tidings to a young maiden in Nazareth, Mary. God was about to visit his people. Mary was to be his mother. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, she replied be it done to me according to thy word. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Redeemer has many names. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, is what St. Gabriel said to Our Lady, for he shall save his people from their sins. Others had had borne the name Jesus, that is, the Lord is help or salvation, but for them it was only a name like any other name, But in this case, the Redeemer's case, it had a preeminent fitness, because through him the salvation of God truly came to the children of men. The name of Jesus is the holiest name. St. Paul says, God hath given him a name which is above all names, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those that are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. The name of Jesus is, Is the mightiest of names. St. Peter said to the man born lame, In the name of Christ Jesus of Nazareth, arise and walk. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and went into the temple. See the third chapter of Acts. The name of Jesus is a name full of charm and sweetness, too. The name of Jesus, writes St. Bernard, is honey to the mouth, music to the ear, bliss to the heart. St. Saint Saint Augustine tells us how his mother, St. Monica, had instilled into his heart a deep love and veneration for the sweet name of Jesus. The name of thy son, he writes in Confessions, had my tender heart, even with my mother's milk, devoutly drunk in and deeply treasured, and whatsoever was without that name, though never so learned, polished and true, took not entire hold on me. Jesus was the personal name of the Redeemer. His official name is Christ. The word Christos has the same meaning as the Hebrew word Messiahs, the anointed. We have found the Messiah, which is interpreted the Christ, John writes in the first chapter of his gospel. In the Old Testament, the word is used of the high priest, who was anointed for his office, and of kings, especially David, were also anointed that is smeared with oil hence it was also used by the prophets to designate the king who was to come the promised messiahs jesus christ is the promised redeemer the messiah the christ prophecies and figures of him are fulfilled in him in jesus was fulfilled all that the prophets foretold of the messiahs jesus said to the jews You search the scriptures, for you think in them to have everlasting life, and the same are they that give testimony of me. Fifth chapter of John. The prophets foretold the time and place of the Redeemer's birth, the circumstances of his life, his passion and death, his resurrection and ascension, the sending of the Holy Ghost, the rejection of the Jews and the conversion of the Gentiles, the foundation, spread, and duration of his kingdom, the Catholic Church. All these prophecies were made many centuries before Christ and were preserved and read by the Jews as divine writings. They were also translated into Greek, and in this way came to the knowledge of the pagan nations. In Jesus Christ were also fulfilled all the figures by which the deeds and sufferings of the Messiah were foreshadowed in the Old Testament, the figures of his passion and death, Abel, Isaac, the Paschal Lamb, the brazen serpent in the desert. The figures of his offices of priest, prophet, and king, Melchizedek, Moses, David. The figure of his resurrection, Jonas. The figures of his church and the sacraments, the ark, the Red Sea, the manna, and the temple with its myriad sacrifices. Now speaking directly of Jesus Christ, what is he? true God and true man in one person. Matthew writes, the words of Saint Peter, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus Christ is true God. This is the testimony of the church. The church has always believed and taught that Jesus Christ is true God and of one substance with the Father. For this belief the holy martyrs joyfully suffered tortures and death and god often confirmed their faith by undeniable miracles i'd like to re, uh recount one of those miracles for you now it's particularly remarkable actually so when huneric king of the arian vandals who most cruelly persecuted those who professed the divinity of christ had the tongues of the catholics of the city of tipasa in africa torn out They spoke without tongues, as fluently and distinctly as before, and proclaimed everywhere that Jesus Christ is true God. About 60 of them escaped to Constantinople, where all the people saw them and heard them speak daily. This happened in the year of our Lord 484, and is attested by many eyewitnesses, amongst others by Bishop Victor of Vita and the philosopher Aeneas of Gaza. The pagans accused the early Christians of worshipping a crucified god. In the year 1856, a caricature of the crucifixion was discovered on a wall in the palace of the Roman emperors on the Palatine Hill. It represents a Christian worshipping a crucified figure with the head of a donkey. Beneath the figure are scratched the words, "Alexamenos worships his god. Pliny the Younger, the Roman governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor, wrote to the Emperor Trajan in the year of Our Lord 112 that the Christians in their meetings sing hymns to Christ as to a God. During the persecution of Decius around the year 250, Polemon, the Roman judge, asked a Christian woman, What God dost thou adore? She answered, The Almighty God who made heaven and earth. Immediately afterwards, he asked another Christian, What God dost thou adore? He answered, Christ. What, said the judge, is that another God? No, replied the Christian, he is the same God whom my companion has confessed. And the year of our Lord, 325, was the Council of Nicaea. And at this council, the church solemnly defined the divinity of Christ in the following terms. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, The only begotten Son of God, and born of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. This truth has the testimony of the apostles from the very beginning. The belief of the church is founded on the belief of the apostles, and the apostles teach explicitly, first, that Jesus Christ is true God, St. John writes in his letter, We know that the Son of God is come. This is the same true God and eternal life. Second, that he possesses the fullness of the Godhead and the infinite perfections of God. In him Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead corporally. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him the testimony of Saints Paul and Saint John. Thirdly, all creatures should adore him. The letter to the Philippians. Saint Paul writes, in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven, on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the glory of God the Father. The apostles proclaimed their belief in Christ's divinity before all men, worked many miracles to confirm this, and, like their divine master, laid down their lives for it. The testimony of Christ himself speaks to this truth. For Christ testifies that he is the Son of God, and true God like his Father. For he makes himself equal to the Father. I and the Father are one. All things whatsoever the Father hath are mine. He that seeth me seeth the Father also. He declared under oath that He is the Son of God. All this is found in the Gospel of St. John and of St. Matthew. Also, our Lord Jesus claims divine attributes, eternity, omnipotence, and omniscience. For He says in the eighth chapter of John's Gospel, before Abraham was made, I am. And again in John's Gospel in chapter five, What things soever the Father doth, these the Son doth also in like manner. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and giveth life, so the Son also giveth life to whom he will. And in Matthew's gospel, Heaven and earth shall pass, but my words shall not pass. And finally, he assumes divine rights and claims divine divine honors. He accepts and confirms the testimony of his apostles. He claims and exercises the right to forgive sins and to sit in judgment on men. For neither doth the Father judge any man, but hath given all judgment to the Son, that all men may honor the Son as they honor the Father. And when Peter said to Jesus, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God, and Thomas cried out, My Lord and my God, Jesus confirmed the faith of these apostles and their declarations. He did not deny but confirmed and christ confirms his testimony by the holiness of his life as well as by the miracles and prophecies christ was free from every sin and imperfection and was so conspicuous for virtue that for all time he must remain the model for all men he said to the jews which of you shall convince me of sin and none dared to reply those who were trying to kill him who hated him and were envious of him Could convict him of not one sin. Judas, the traitor, bore witness to his holiness when he declared, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. And Pilate himself had to admit before all the people, I find no cause in him. The Gospels are full of examples of his charity, his humility, gentleness, forbearance, patience, clemency, love of his enemies love of the poor, the afflicted, the outcast. The list goes on and on. Christ worked numerous miracles, many of them before hundreds or thousands of witnesses, such as the multiplication of the loaves, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. His own resurrection is the crown of all his miracles and the supreme proof of his divinity. Christ foretold events which God alone could know. For example, the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, his own passion and death with all their details, his resurrection and ascension, the destruction of Jerusalem, the rapid spread and duration of his church, and the persecution of his followers. The testimony of Christ is sealed by his death. The death of Jesus is the surest proof of the truth of his claim to be the Son of God and true God. At his trial, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus knew that life or death depended on his answer to this question. If he had answered, I am not the Son of God, he would not have been condemned to death. But he solemnly confessed, Thou hast said it. And on account of this confession, he was put to death. We must therefore either accept Christ as the Son of God or regard him as the greatest fool and rascal that ever lived. For only a person who is unbalanced in their head or filled with devilish malice could persist until death in calling himself God if he is not God. But Jesus Christ is also true man. When the time fixed by God for the fulfillment of His promise to send a Redeemer arrived, God the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, became man through the operation of the Holy Ghost and was born of the Virgin Mary. God the Son became man means that He took a human body and a human soul. He could feel and suffer as we can. And that he was like to us in all things except sin. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, in the beautiful words of St. John. Christ had a true human body. He felt hunger and thirst, ate and drank, was often weary and footsore, slept, suffered, and died. He also had a true human soul. He had compassion on the widow of Naim, raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead, wept over Jerusalem. He loved Mara and Mar- Martha and Mary and Lazarus and rejoiced at the confession of St. Peter. In the garden he prayed, My soul is sorrowful unto death. And on the cross he bowed his head and died with the words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus Christ. Is only one person, however. The second person of the Blessed Trinity united the human nature inseparably inseparably with himself. This union is called hypostatic, that is, personal union. That Christ is only one person is clearly taught in sacred scripture. Both human and divine actions were attributed to him. In this we have known the charity of God, writes St. John, because he hath laid down his life for us. St. John here speaks of the Son of God and says that he died for us, though he suffered death not in his divine nature, but in his human nature. I and the Father are one. Here Christ ascribes the divine nature to himself. One person, therefore, possesses the divine and human natures and acts through both. Now, if God, or if, if there were two persons in Christ... Mary would not be the mother of God, and Christ would not be God. God would not have died for us, but only the man Christ. Nestorius, once patriarch of Constantinople, who maintained that Christ was only the temple of God, was condemned by the Council of Ephesus the year of our Lord 431. But there are two distinct wills in Christ. Since there are two complete natures in Christ, it follows that there are two distinct wills in Him, a divine will, and a human will. The human will of Christ was, however, always in perfect harmony with the divine will. If it be possible, let this chalice pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. In the sixth general council in the year 680, this council condemned the heresy of Sergius, another former patriarch of Constantinople, who taught that there was only one and that a divine will in Christ. No, no, there are two, a human will and a divine will in perfect unity, united in the divine person of God the Son. So in summation, we have the church's teaching on the incarnation and we can look to the second part of the Athanasian creed, which admirably sums up the teaching of the church on this joyful mystery of the incarnation. After setting forth the ca- Catholic doctrine on the Trinity, Athanasian's Creed, Ath- the Athanasian Creed continues, Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation to believe faithfully the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the right faith is this, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is both God and man. He is God of the substance of the Father, begotten before all time, and he is man born of the substance of his mother since the beginning of time. Perfect God and perfect man, consisting of a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father according to his divinity, less than the Father according to his humanity, who although he is both God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One not by the conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by the assuming of human nature unto God. One altogether, not by mingling of substance, but by the unity of person. For as the rational soul and the body constitute one man, so God and man is one Christ. Now there are prerogatives of the human nature of Christ. In John's prologue we read, We saw his glory, the glory as it were, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ's human nature, being the nature of a divine person, possessed all the perfections of which human nature is capable, and which are not opposed to the purpose for which Christ became man. Hence, Christ was not exempt from suffering and death, because he wished to redeem us by his passion and death. Now, Christ possessed on earth the vision of God face to face, as well as perfect knowledge, directly infused by God, of all natural and supernatural truths. He had knowledge not only of the past, but also of the future. The prophets had received revelations of some mysteries of God and of some future events. But in Christ there is present the whole truth. For he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me walketh not in darkness. And St. John says of him, We saw his glory, the glory as it were, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is incapable of sin. The power to sin is not a perfection, but an imperfection of the will. Christ's human nature was sanctified not only by its union with the second person of the Blessed Trinity, but also by sanctifying grace. It was, moreover, adorned with all virtues, except the theological virtues of faith and hope. For he saw God and possessed him already, and hence he could not have neither faith nor hope. Now, Christ's human nature claims adoration from us. We adore the human nature of Christ, not for its own sake, but because it belongs to a divine person. We adore the whole Christ, and therefore also his human nature. Of the whole Christ, the scripture says, Let all the angels of God adore him. First chapter of Hebrews. Christ as man consists of body and soul, His body as well as his soul are united with the divine person and therefore claim our adoration. This adoration extends not only to the whole body, but also to its different parts, the precious blood, the five holy wounds, and of course, the sacred heart. There are various reasons why the sacred heart of Jesus should be especially honored and adored. First, Christ himself points to his heart as the best seat of those virtues and sentiments which we ought to imitate. Learn of me because I am meek and humble of heart. Matthew eleven twenty Second, the feelings of the soul are in some way manifested in the heart, or at least exercise an influence upon it. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, says our Lord, and through the prophet God says to us, my son, give me thy heart. Thirdly, In the languages of all nations, the heart is the emblem of love. The Sacred Heart of Jesus is therefore the symbol of God's eternal love for us. And for this reason, above all, we adore it in a special manner. Fourthly, the heart of Jesus is a human heart like ours. Every cord of feeling in us, except for sin, has its answer in the heart of Christ. He understands us all in all things So whatever our character and our special difficulties, we can take them to Him. God love you, and we hope you tune in next time.